Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes Store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our questions for episode 40 are, what is justice and what is the ideal type of government? We read Plato's Republic, focusing primarily but not exclusively on books one, two, and four. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Wes Alwan in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Dylan Casey, also in Madison, Wisconsin. Woohoo. But not in the same room. <laughs> but not in the same room, indeed. <laughs> we would not take advantage of uh, proximity in that, that way. That would be cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. Being able to read people's facial expressions, that would, That's be, right. uh, that would make the conversation too rich and exclusive <laughs> and insider. I would certainly feel left out. So, did you like reading this book when you were at St. John's, Wes? Was this the seminal experience it was supposed to be? Well, I was distracted by a lot of other things at that time. In the fall of your freshman year? Yeah, I, was, I can't even remember, frankly, <laughs> my experience. You know, I was 17 years old. 22 years ago. And that was the last time you read the book, right? Yep. Until now? I read sections probably in grad school, and I read secondary literature about it. But as far as plowing through, and I only really got through the first six books this time. I mean, I, I remember much more reading the symposium because I wrote my sure. senior thesis on that. And when I was a freshman, I think I wasn't that interested it wasn't really until I was a senior after reading Kant that I returned to Plato and suddenly became really fascinated with Plato. Plato was sort of lost on me early on. Right, because he just comes off as a jackass, right? I mean, proposing this crazy form of government, like it's very easy to write off if you're not interested in him for the historical value and looking for the subtleties. And Yeah, exactly. This time I was just very, very into it, very pleased with it. <laughs> We are lucky to have Dylan here, who has taught it several times recently, right? Yeah, I guess the last time I did freshman seminar, it's been a while since I did The Republic. But unlike Wes, when I read it as an undergrad, it was a huge experience for me. I read it in my sophomore year as part of a long course where we spent, I don't know, six weeks on it. Mm. And uh, I followed the advice of my professor, which was that I should just blast through it once, then read it again with the class. So I had read it twice by the time I was done with that class. And then I guess I read it two or three times for St. John's. But St. John's, it's all conversations. It's not lecturing or anything like that. Yeah. So instead of reading expert secondary literature on it, you got to hear uh, freshmen. Exactly. There are expert freshmen uh, <laughs> conversations. 
I've read very little secondary literature. I did listen to some of the um, Plato iTunes stuff that Mark had pointed out. Yes, we'll put some stuff on the blog. So one was Stephen B. Smith, right? Which you should certainly follow Mark's advice and listen to it at double speed because then it sounds normal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a lecture from Yale who just worships Plato. And it's great to find somebody who's a complete Plato advocate and in fact paints him as, no, he's not anti-democracy and he's not, uh, you know, he's just like the modern (laughs) thinkers of today. (laughs) I didn't listen to any of that. I looked at though the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia article, Plato's Ethics and Politics in the Republic. Oh. It's a long and good overview of all the secondary literature debates, and then with a long bibliography. And I looked a little bit at um, the Cambridge Companion. I don't really have a high opinion, I think, now of the Cambridge Companions. The articles seem kind of random. I don't know how that's supposed to be the introductory set of secondary readings to something. They just seem to be... Whoever's the editor, oh, my friend wrote this, so I'm going to throw that in. and then They don't have the disposition of an encyclopedia, probably. <laughs> exactly. Well, I read this for the first time, some part of it, I don't know what part of it. In high school, I had a senior year political philosophy class. We had some Hobbes, we had some Rousseau, and this is what we started off with. So this, in fact, it didn't get me that excited about Plato in particular, although I always liked the style, but it sold me on philosophy, period. It was like, this was my introduction to philosophy. And it is. I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. This is the big book. Not necessarily the whole thing. I don't know if I ever read the whole thing before this time, frankly. I'm sure I did in some class, but I couldn't tell you. And there were definite parts toward the very end of it where I was very surprised. You skimmed the myth of Ur, didn't you? No, I, I read the whole damn thing. You did? Wow. Yes. It, yeah, definitely drags in in some spots. <laughs> Even just looking at the beginning, right, I chose one, two, and four because three, though interesting, just goes on and on and on and on about a very small amount of material about how do we train the guardian class? Should we let them learn minor chords or not? I thought that would interest you. It doesn't need to be. The Dorian and the no. uh, Phrygian. Yeah, what are the, what, what are the proper non-corrupting chords and scales? <laughs> I know that uh, Simon and Garfunkel's um, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme song. That's in Dorian. And then I realized that something said that that's actually the reverse. Like the Dorian in ancient Greece is now the Phrygian and, and the Phrygian is the Dorian. So the Dorian <laughs> is the mode that he was recommending is sort of the martial military influence, right, for the guardians or the auxiliaries. And then the Phrygian was the more peaceful. But in today's terms, it would be listen to some Simon and Garfunkel to chill out and then... <laughs> Listen to uh, Bruckner, I think, is a lot of that's in the Phrygian. So that little random bit from the middle of number three is is the perfect introduction to people who have never even heard of this dialogue and don't know what it's about. So let's give the two-second overview. I gave what the questions are. So it just starts as a dialogue about what is justice, and they go through a lot of options. And then eventually he says, Socrates, speaking for Plato, says, instead of considering justice in the individual, let's make it easier to see by talking about it in the state. And he goes on to describe for a long, 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 long time what the ideal state would be, the ideal type of government. And eventually he tracks back to making the analogy. And it comes down to something of each type of person keeps to doing what they do best. And so the state needs to be ruled by those who are most competent and most wise and most in touch with virtue, whereas the people who are dominated by desire should be carefully kept in check. And so that's the analogy for what justice is in the human being is 
keeping the parts of your personality in check, of keeping your reason in control, as opposed to your fiery spirit that is has its place and has its purpose, but needs to be controlled, and your animal desires that themselves need to be even more heavily controlled. Animal desires. You really did read the uh, the three horses, the older, the older translation, didn't you? <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I don't know. That sounds right. You know, in some ways, since we suggested that we read books one, two, and four, it might be worthwhile talking a little bit in particular about book one, both because it's fairly long and it really sets things up for later on. I know that the next big transition then, of course, is to say, well, we're going to look at justice by drawing a correspondence between the justice in the city and the justice in the soul of the person. And that's worth talking about that move by itself a bit. But maybe we could go through the cast of characters or something a little bit in book one and what they end up talking about. Sure. Yeah. If you want details that uh, Stephen B. Smith lecture, he really goes... He does go through book one. He's excited about, yes, yeah, yeah, about like what each of these interlocutors, because usually in one of these dialogues, it's Socrates and somebody else, and it's the person who it's named for. So you could name this whole thing the Glaucon, because most of it he's talking to Glaucon, who is actually, I guess in real life, one of the brothers of Plato. Yep. But in book one, Glaucon is not even talking yet. This is some other guys, right? Socrates gets roped into first uh, talking to this old guy who kind of is a rich guy that runs the house that he's at, and they're trying to figure out what is justice. Cephalus is the first guy. And his uh, definition is speaking the truth and giving back what one takes, right? Paying what you owe. That's what yep. justice is. And he's Paying supposed your debts. to. Yes. Mm-hmm. And according to Smith, he represents the conventional view, which is considered and then hastily discarded. And this character, in fact, leaves <laughs> and yep. is not heard from again. But he seems a nice enough guy. Yeah, he goes off to tend to the sacrifices. And- As Smith says, he's sort of the quintessential patriarch. Yeah. I think of him as Marlon Brando in the later years. (laughs) The Island of Dr. Moreau, where Marlon Brando is carried in on this throne with uh, these white linen sheets billowing in the wind. That's Cephalus. (laughs) Cephalus, okay. It could be Cephalus. You can, yeah. I thought it was Polemarchus, not Polemarchus. They seem to call him Polemarchus. The Smith lecture? Yeah. I always called him Polemarchus, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I never stressed the R. <laughs> so, anyway, without being distracted. We could go to the ancient Greek and look that up. <laughs> yes, we could. <laughs> we want this to be listenable. I have to say it, it's probably Polemarchus. <laughs> Polemarchus. It probably is Polemarchus. Because the R is long, and then you can't go to the anti-penultimate with the accent. When the, yeah, when you're the probably right. Is long. Are you trying to get me to edit this out? <laughs> just giving you some things to edit out, Mark. I'm just... <laughs> I actually spent a summer just concentrating on pronunciation of ancient Greek. It's pretty, pretty sad, I know. So this is uh, speaking the truth and giving back what one takes... Hey, Cephalus, what about if some crazy guy has has loaned you his weapon and he's asking for it back and you think it's very likely that he'll kill himself or somebody else if you give it back, shouldn't you? That shows that your definition, speaking the truth and giving back what it takes, is not all there is to justice. There are exceptions. So that is dispatched quickly. Yeah, and he also uses the Nazi example, right? This is the first use of (laughs) the example of Nazis coming to your door, looking for Anne Frank and... Yeah, that, that, that joke really every, every, every conversation with the public involves that example. It always does. That and Kant. Yeah, it's a similar type of objection. You can't just say always 
pay your debts in the same way that you can't just say you must always tell the truth. Things get complicated. Right. So we're looking for an exact definition, a set of necessary and sufficient conditions, something like that. And so the mantle is then taken by Polemarchus. Son of Cephalus. Yes. Who uh, says eventually justice is helping your friends and harming your enemies. And this guy, by the way, was killed, right, during the 30 tyrants takeover. This character is based on a real person who was killed. Yes. And Plato was related to some of these people who took over. There was a democracy, and then the tyrants took over for a while, an oligarchy, and they killed a few people. Socrates himself almost got killed, and then the democracy was restored. So Plato, you know, that's one of the... This talk about whether Plato is an authoritarian or not, he's often accused because of that association with the 30 tyrants, although some will argue that he rejected the 30 tyrants just as much as he was critical of democracy. Yeah, they'll point to that seventh letter. Yeah, which is probably forged. Just explain a little, and this was the first on listening to these Smith lectures, the first I heard about these letters supposedly from Plato, and one of them at least reflects back on writing The Republic. And so he wrote the Republic after all this stuff happened with the Third Tyrants, right? You're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the evidence to say, really, even though this whole thing sounds very anti-democracy, Lee Smith was saying that, no, 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 this letter, how he was so positive about how bad things went with the 30 tyrants compared to democracy and the democracy was the golden age, shows that, yes, Plato would like things to improve. And of course, anybody who's in favor of democracy would rather have the competent people win the elections mm-hmm. or somehow get in power. Still, the at least, again, Smith's interpretation was that Plato had the common view today, democracy is the worst possible form of government, except all the other ones that have been tried. And clearly he thinks tyranny is terrible from the Republic. He has more nasty things to say about tyranny than he does about democracy. It's not as good as the competent people being in charge. Having the people just by their whims be able to say, to kill all the redheads if they hate them. Whatever, you know, tyranny of the majority. Well, yeah, the problem is loaded because, of course, we like to think of ourselves as having a democracy. And so to have Plato come out against democracy, your professors love saying this, you know, he's coming out against democracy and all of you students are lovers of democracy. So isn't it very provocative for you? But (laughs) his understanding of what democracy is and the danger is no different than anybody who thought for a second about the problem of majority rule, even in the founding fathers. And the idea that unchecked rule of the majority can cause problems that are tyrannical is central to even our own version of democracy. Right. I don't know much about the roots of the accusations against Plato being pro-tyranny, but his criticism of the problems of democracy, they seem pretty straightforward. Yeah. Less than the criticisms of democracy is just the picture he paints. You know, the utopia itself can be kind of frightening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yes. And I guess there it becomes a whole question of how does that utopia fit in with the dialogue as a whole? Yeah. Some people, you can, you know, on the one hand, take it very seriously as explicitly what he means. You could, on the other hand, go a full ironic route and say that he means something completely different than that or something in between, you know, that it fits in with the dialogue as a whole, what he's trying to somehow educate Glaucon about. Yeah, it's meant to be a metaphor, right? It's meant to be a way of getting at justice in the soul. And so how seriously we take it, whether it's possible, you know, he's sort of needled by Adamentus and the rest of them about whether this is possible or not, whether 
this is just sort of a pie in the sky kind of idea, whether it's meant to be taken seriously. And I don't think he gives that direct an answer to that. But yeah, yeah, this is one of the big debates in scholarship is whether we see this as a serious political proposal or merely as a metaphor for the soul or somewhere in between. Yeah. So yeah, we were introducing these characters. Paul and Marcus. Yeah. Justice is helping your friends and harming your enemies, right? So that's supposed to be better than give to everyone what you owe them. It's give it to everyone what is fitting. But fitting in a particular way, in which involves the just man harming people, which is where Socrates goes after him on it, right? He brings him around to admitting that in his scenario, on the one hand, it means the just man will harm people. That comes out at the beginning, but then he brings him around to the notion that the just man wouldn't do any harm to anybody. Right, because harming them would make them worse. Yes, exactly. And less just, and a just person yes. wouldn't go around making people less just, which seems like a good critique. Mark, you recently posted on, we both posted a little bit on this Eagleman guy who wrote a neuroscience book called Incognito, and he's arguing for this completely non-punitive criminal justice system. Plato is making the same argument here, that justice is not properly thought of as punitive in any sense. So if someone is doing unjust things, it's out of a defect on their part. I mean, Eagleman is explicit that there's something wrong with their brains. So if you're punishing them for that, actually, I don't see how that analogy completely works. Because you can't just say, you're making their brains worse. You're not... Well, he's arguing for rehabilitation. So you want to make the unjust more just by rehabilitative activities, not by sticking them in solitary confinement and turning them into an even worse person. Mm -hmm. The reason for putting someone behind bars is either just to make the, everyone else safe or to reform that person. The idea that there's anything just about the punitive aspect of that, about punishing someone because they're bad, is just a bit of nonsense under that view. So in this case, also, you know, we're talking about the just man not inflicting harm on someone. And part of what's at stake here, of course, is the soul of the just man himself, right? Which will turn out to involve this concept of these harmonized parts that fit together in the right way. And so whether or not doing harm, that kind of activity would unbalance the just person, that will become the primary consideration. Yeah. And in fact, for Socrates, in this little interaction with Polemarchus, that's really the death blow, the notion that doing harm to one's enemies is actually harmful to the one doing it. Yeah. So part of the argument is that it's harmful to the goal involved. But in the end, the real problem is that that's bad for the just man. And part of the way that argument works out is the version of doing good for one's friends and harm to one's enemies turns into... Uh, I'm moving to the very related one with Thrasymachus, the advantage of the stronger, which is, is different, but... Yeah. Yeah, well, the movement through here, so it starts, it's just sort of pay what you owe, and then, then yeah. with Paul Marcus, it's help your friends and harm your enemies, but then the question is, how do you know that who you think are your friends really are your friends? So it's not help who you think are your friends, it's help the people who are actually helping you. So that morphs very naturally into justice is helping the good, those who are actually good, and harming those who are actually not just seeming to be your enemies, but who are actually bad. Because otherwise, if you're just, even if you're helping your true friends and harming your enemies, are your enemies... Yes. Really, actually, in themselves, bad people, you know, when you're working against their interests, isn't there something messed up about that? Yeah, if you make mistakes, right, your judgment about who are your enemies and who are your friends could be wrong. Right. In fact, the way Plato wants to analyze it is that anybody that's doing bad things is not your friend, even if you have a history with them. Yep. 
And anybody, conversely, then who is doing good things, maybe historically this person has been your enemy, but it shouldn't be. That's what being the just person is, is recognizing those things and helping the causes that should be helped, not out of just the random situations of your circumstance and who you happen to be friends with, but through a rational analysis of what's going on. Forwarding the good. Throughout here, this, uh, I don't know, what do you call it, one-dimensionality in good and evil, even though he doesn't, you know, you might say evil is not the term that you'd want to use here, but it always turns out that excellence in anything turns out to be part of the good, to contribute to justice, right? It's not the case that you could have, like for Nietzsche, say, you have all these different urges pulling you in different directions, and sort of each one of them is an excellence, but yet they all contradict. There's no contradiction in the good according to Plato. I think this question is related to it, and I am just want to pick a particular section where this happens. It's at 335C. Okay. It's at the end of where Socrates is talking to Polemarchus, where he starts talking about dogs and horses and horsemanship and stuff like that. And he says, right at 335B, is it then the part of a just man to injure any human being whatsoever? Polemarchus replies, certainly, bad men and enemies ought to be injured. And then he does the thing with the horses. He's, do horses that have been injured become better or worse? Worse, with respect to the virtue of dogs or with respect to that of horses. And he says, are men skilled in horsemanship able to make men incompetent riders by horsemanship? And Polemarchus says that can't be. And when I was reading this again, I wondered <laughs> if that was actually just not true. So if you could teach somebody bad habits on purpose? Well, yeah, that the way you would make a person incompetent in horsemanship was through horsemanship. Now, Plato would probably say, or Socrates, but surely that would be through bad horsemanship. But it's not clear that the teaching of horsemanship is the same as horsemanship. So there would be a distinction between those two things. And it's also not clear to me that even if you were to teach bad or good horsemanship, that it wouldn't be through horsemanship itself that you wouldn't do both of those things. Right. This is getting exactly at, you know, so horsemanship is an excellence. So therefore, yes. a priori in that very field of horsemanship, no wrong could come out of it. Yes. And, and when I read that, it made me remember or realize in a way that I hadn't realized before how sort of mathematical and geometrical this is for Plato. I mean, there's a real reason why you have to be educated in the geometrical before going to Plato's Academy. And it's because of this kind of thinking about the way one thing is, and that's the way it is, insofar as it is that way. This kind of argument is, is such a geometrical proof kind of argument that relies on there being no... How did you say it, Mark? You contrasted the understanding of the good in Plato with the understanding of the good in Nietzsche. You would have multiple goods in Nietzsche. Multiple and potentially incompatible. Multiple yes. potentially incompatible. And I think you're right. For Plato, they just simply aren't incompatible. So when you do things that are wrong in Plato, you can never do something for the sake of it being bad. It might be bad, but the only way you do that is by mistaking what the good is. And once you got what was good, you would never be mistaken about that, or you would never be at war with it the way you pointed out you could be in Nietzsche. You could have wars between goods. You would never have multiple geometries that were themselves not consistent with one another. Right. I want to read a little more of the passage you were looking at. So he's talking about the different kinds of excellence, right? Yeah. A dog has a certain kind of excellence. What makes a great kind of dog? What makes a great kind of horse? This should sound very familiar to anybody that's listened to our Aristotle on virtue ethics episode long ago. So he continues at uh, 335C, 
Should we not assert the same of human beings, that when they are harmed, they become worse with respect to human virtue? Well, certainly. But isn't justice human virtue? That's also necessary. Then, my friend, human beings who have been harmed necessarily become more unjust. It seems so. I mean, just listen to Yep. Really? Human beings who are harmed necessarily become more unjust. That seems extremely counterintuitive, and it makes me wonder if this is an issue of translation somehow, that this is not just... Why is that counterintuitive? That people who are abused become poor in character? Anyone who has harmed becomes more unjust. I mean, we have this vision of the innocent, helpless, but completely virtuous the child or the saint who walks through the world and injustice is heaped upon the person, but the person maintains that hope and vision and is, is not harmed by this. I mean, that's at least one of the archetypes that is in Disney movies and things. <laughs> Isn't it also an intuition, though, that people's characters are degraded by being harmed? You know, I mean, the prototypical cases of children who have been abused who can become abusers themselves or they at very least they'll have lots of problems with character which is another way of talking about virtue the word that plato's using i think plato would have a lot of difficulty for instance if you have an abused kid who yet still looks up to and loves the parent right because it's dependent upon the parent it seems like he'd have trouble getting his head around that like if you're being harmed then it should in some sense be obvious to you that you are harmed right? Because you are harmed in very obvious ways. You are harmed in every way. And this brings me back to our very first podcast when we covered the Apology and one of his uh, Socrates is, is about to be condemned to death. And he says, hey, look, I've been accused of corrupting the youth, but really that's not even possible because look, all these youth keep coming to me. They come back to me. They wouldn't be coming back to me and thanking me if they'd been corrupted because corrupting is bad. You know, again, denying any sort of multidimensional or difference in opinion regarding these different things that, oh, if I'm corrupting you, then I must be corrupting you in a very obvious way. What are you claiming here? It seems very intuitively obvious to me that somebody could be corrupted and not realize that or be corrupted and not have it be, you know, so I'm brought up as a thief. My parents were thieves and they trained me to be a thief. And maybe even I have a loving home <laughs> that in my thievery that has been brought about to me. And so I become part of the organized crime family here. This would be inconceivable to Socrates, because according to him, if somebody is training me to do something bad, then they are hurting me. And the hurting is going to show up in obvious ways. It's like my very soul and my body are all decaying because of this hurt my soul he does talk about the sort of honor among bands of criminals who must behave in an organized way and justly towards each other at some point right so you're saying that this is an uncomplex view mark well yeah i remember him making references that, i mean that's his ultimate argument against one of his arguments against having a society of people who are unjust there's no way they can cooperate because right, being right. unjust means you can't cooperate so it seems like there's room for degrees of justice, and then those sorts of complications, even though it may look simplistic here. Though. When I read that line, human beings who have been injured necessarily become more unjust. I take him as understanding that injuries lead to that unjustice, but you may be mistaken about whether you've been injured or not. There's this whole problem of making mistakes and what kind mm -hmm. of recognition there is about the world. I mean, ultimately, that leads to the allegory of the cave and all that business. So, it's not the case that you would necessarily recognize being educated improperly. 
this is something I would defend, you know, as a general principle. It's not the case that every time someone is harmed or injured, and by the way, injured here means it's something done by another human being unjustly to you. It does seem following sort of the geometrical model that Dylan has suggested. So he has this metaphysics that he works up to. And again, it's unclear how seriously to take some of these metaphysical claims. Like, is he just sort of putting a metaphor out there to characterize a principle that's underlying these empirical observations? Or is he really saying this is at bottom what reality is metaphysically like, and thus it's going to appear that way on the surface to a greater or lesser extent? And in particular, what I mean to say is that he's got this idea, for instance, of the perfect forms. So that's really what justice is written into nature, that an excellence is. It's not just like for Aristotle, the excellence of a dog is healthy and hunting well and doing whatever it is we think a dog is supposed to do or whatever it is, just observing it, it looks like it's supposed to do. But really, there is an ideal dog sort of written into nature that is just like there's an ideal triangle that we can never actually draw because we can't draw lines with no width and with the sides all exactly the same. So comparably, just for everything, there is a perfection to it that it exists in some ideal realm. And whether it's a real metaphysical existence or just this is a phenomenological feature of whenever we think of things, we can always think of what would a better one be? What would a better one be? And what are we doing that? We're referring to some kind of absolute standard that is out there. His argument is not entirely dependent on that metaphysics, right? Because you can still get a virtue ethics going the more Aristotelian route, which in many ways, sure, you know, the metaphysics comes later in this book and early on, it's got a very Aristotelian feel to it. So the idea of virtue, right? And this idea of talking about the virtue of dogs, the idea is that for any organism, there's a sort of built-in function. There's organs and there's all kinds of work and activity going on that this organism does just to maintain itself as such, right? The alternative mm -hmm. is dying and immediately decaying. And there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into just being for an organism. So all those functions, and there are many of them, so the idea is that those functions, in a way, tell us that there's this attempt going on to do certain things. And so there's an implicit goal there with those functions. And there's an implicit best way to be for a dog because you just have to look at what all these functions are trying to do. And you can tell when something has failed and when a dog is not being fully a dog or its leg is broken or those sorts of intuitive ideas. So analogously to human beings, there's what it means to be a human being and to be that in the most effectively, essentially. So the idea of justice is important here is because the idea is that the different functioning parts can conflict with each other. I mean, you're right about the whole Nietzsche thing where he's not saying that they inevitably conflict, but they can conflict. So for instance, if the desiring or the appetitive part of the soul takes over and tries to run things, gets in the way of the other parts of the soul. Ideally, right, all those parts of the soul, the spirited, the desiring, and the, and the rational do their thing, and they don't screw up the functioning of the other parts. And that ultimately is what justice turns out to be. I think you can do all of that without the metaphysics, without the saying it's sort of uh, written into an otherworldly idea. Does that make sense? Well, I'm letting myself be convinced because I like interpreting Plato better <laughs> the way you're describing. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. 
For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.